The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If any of you out there have ever felt lost or alone or a disappointment to the people you love, the people you know. I wonder what you'll make of this. This is Vincent van Gogh writing to his brother. Uh, It is true that occasionally I have earned my crust of bread. Occasionally a friend has given it to me in charity. I have lived as I could, as luck would have it haphazardly. It is true that I have lost the confidence of many. It is true that my financial affairs are in a sad state. It is true that the future is only too gloomy. It is true that I might have done better. It is true that I've lost time in terms of earning my bread. It is true that even my studies are in a rather sad and hopeless condition, and that my needs are greater, infinitely greater, than my possessions. Well, what shall I say? Do our inner thoughts ever show outwardly? There may be a great fire in our soul, yet no one ever comes to warm himself at it, and the passers-by see only a wisp of smoke coming through the chimney and go along their way. So look here, now, what must be done? Must one tend that inner fire, have salt in oneself, wait patiently, with how much impatience, for the hour when somebody will come and sit down near it? maybe to stay. And that is Van Gogh when he is 27 years old. And what I want to do today is go through his life up until that moment, up until he is 27 years old, after he has tried so many things, tried so many jobs, tried so many schools, tried to do so many things that his family has tried to help him with and failed at all of them. And how at the very end of it, when he gets to the bottom, he suddenly realizes that art is it, and that even though that will not succeed in any uh, outward way, any more than anything else did in his life, he at least realizes that it is the only thing that he can do for himself, for his soul. As it was said in another context um, by another poet, I believe, who, uh, whose father was asking him why he's writing poetry. I believe the line was, it would be spiritual death for me not to do this. So that at least by the age of 27, at least Van Gogh realizes that. He realizes the one thing, that it would be spiritual death for him not to do, not to follow. But before we get there, uh, we need to go back to his childhood and to three things that his mother instilled in him, his mother and father, but mostly his mother instilled in him 
And uh, to do that, we need to go back to uh, Stephen Nife and Gregory Whitesmith's wonderful book called Van Gogh, The Life. And we'll read a few passages there and then catch back up to the letters that I was just reading from. And in an hour or so, we will get a good sense of what it was that Vincent Van Gogh's first 27 years were like. Anna Van Gogh responded to the ordeal of her new life on the heath by imposing on her family, as zealously as on herself, the rigors of normality. She's a sort of a city woman who uh, married a minister in the Dutch Reformed Church, and they end up sort of going out into the rural, sort of into the wilds, and this is what she does. Every day, mother, father, children, and governess walked for an hour in and around the town, an area that included gardens and fields, as well as the dusty streetscape. Anna believed that these walks not only improved her family's health, their color and brightness, but also they rejuvenated their spirits. The daily ritual both displayed the family's bourgeois status, working people could never take an hour off during the day, and stamped the family unit with the imprimatur of glorious nature, capital N, nature. Anna also planted a garden. Family gardens had been a Dutch institution for centuries, thanks both to the fecundity of the soil and the exemption from feudal taxes that the products of these gardens enjoyed. For the 19th century bourgeoisie, who lived far beyond subsistence, flower gardens became a mark of leisure and plenty. The rich built country houses, the middle class lavished attention on tiny city plots, and the poor planted window boxes and pots. In 1845, Alphonse Carr's book, A Tour Round My Garden, touched the Dutch love affair with gardens to the heartstrings of Victorian sentimentality and instantly became a favorite of the families like the Van Goghs. Uh, one of the quotes from Carr's book says, love among flowers is not selfish. They are happy in loving and blooming. And for the rest of her life, Vincent Van Gogh's mother, Anna, believed that, quote, working in the garden and seeing the flowers grow was essential to both health and happiness. The garden in Zundert, that's the name of the city that they live in, the village. The garden in Zundert, which lay behind the barn and behind the parsonage, was large by Anna's city standards. Long and narrow, like the parsonage, it was neatly enclosed by a beech hedge and sloped gently downhill toward the fields of rye and wheat beyond. She carefully divided it into sections putting flowers nearest the house. Eventually, flowers crowded out the more proletarian vegetables, which were banished to a plot adjacent to the nearby cemetery, where the parsonage grew crops, mowed hay, and cultivated trees for market. True to Victorian taste, 
Anna preferred delicate, small-bloomed flowers, marigolds, mijonets, geraniums, golden rain, all arranged in multicolored profusion. She maintained that scent was more important than color, but she favored red and yellow. And beyond the flower beds lay rows of blackberry and raspberry bushes and fruit trees, apple, pear, plums, and peach, that dotted the garden with color in spring. Cramped in the dark parsonage throughout the long winter, Anna's young family monitored every nuance of season and celebrated spring's first starling or daisy like freed prisoners. And from that moment on, the family's center of gravity moved to the garden. Doris, the father of the family, his name is Doris, Theodorus, studied and wrote sermons there. Anna herself read under a shade awning, and the children played games in the harvest and harvest in the harvested crops, and built castles in the paths of fine Zundert sand. Every member of the Van Gogh family shared responsibility for the garden's cultivation. Doris tended the trees and vines, grape and ivy, and Anna the flowers, and each child was given his or her own small plot to plant and harvest. And you can, you can see here uh, what Van Gogh later does with this attention to detail, attention to nature, attention to flowers, and even if his mother didn't pay as much attention to colors, his eventual attention to colors. Let's see here. And then we move on to just another small passage here. This is uh, great foreshadowing here, you might say. Uh, it says that also everyone learned to draw. Under Anna's tutelage, all the Van Gogh children mastered the parlor arts of collage, sketching, and painting in order to decorate and to personalize the gifts and the notes that they exchanged with each other. Now, what I do, I haven't seen this actually done, uh, mentioned in the uh, biographies or even in Van Gogh's letters, but something that strikes me here is that what Van Gogh does, he takes the love of walks uh, that his mother tried to instill in him. He takes the love of nature, of flowers, of noticing the seasons, of growing things, of color, of all of that, and then he takes the supposedly uh, distracting or merely polite, or it will just keep you busy so that you don't uh, become depressed. He takes that view of painting and drawing and collage, and uh, in his own mind, he takes it into the stratosphere. It becomes his passion. It becomes the reason that he is alive, and it becomes the reason that he can't really do anything else. He cannot make a living doing anything else. He can't get these things out of his mind. And this starts very early uh, when he begins to take the walks that uh, he's been told to take, but he starts taking them on his own. This is just a brief passage here about young Vincent van Gogh going out on walks uh, by himself. This is what it says. Uh, Vincent increasingly sought escape from family rituals. Nature beckoned. Compared to the physical and emotional claustrophobia of the parsonage, the surrounding fields and heaths exerted an irresistible pull. 
and starting at an early age, Vincent began to wander out past the barn, past the rainwater well, down the hill, past the bleaching field where the family's linen was hung to dry, through the garden gate, and into the fields beyond. Most of Zundert's farms were relatively small, but to the Van Gogh children, penned in the narrow garden, the patchwork sea of rye and corn that surrounded the town looked immense to them. The land of desire is what they called it. Vincent followed the path that led through the meadows to a, stand, to a sandy stream bed, the Grotbeck, Grotbeek, where the water ran cool even on the hottest summer day, and his feet left imprints in the fine wet sand. His parents occasionally came this far on the family's daily walks, although the children were forbidden to go near the water. But Vincent, Vincent eventually went farther. He walked west and south to where the cultivated fields dissolved into wilderness. Mile after mile of sandy moors, carpeted in heather and gorse, marshy lowlands bristling with rushes and stands of pine. It may have been on these walks, on the broad, deserted moors, that Vincent van Gogh discovered the special light and sky of his own native country. The unique combination of sea moisture and morphing clouds that had transfixed artists for centuries. The most harmonious of all countries, an American painter described Holland in 1887, a sky of the purest turquoise and a soft sun throwing over everything a yellow saffron light. And in addition to sky and light, the Dutch had long been famous for their curiosity and close looking. Dutchmen, of course, invented both the telescope and the microscope. The windy moors of Zundert provided endless scope for all of Vincent's powers of observation. The meticulous attention he had developed in copying his mother's drawings now focused on God's designs. Vincent peered deeply into the fleeting vignettes of life on the heath, the blooming of a wildflower, the laboring of an insect, the nesting of a bird. His days, his sister recalled, his days were spent watching and studying the life of the underbrush. He sat on the sandy banks of the Grotebeek for hours, observing the transits of water bugs. He followed the flights of larks from church tower to corn sheaf to nests hidden in the rye. He could pick his way through the high grain without even breaking one fine stalk, his sister said, and he would perch beside the nest for hours, just watching. His mind, she said, was given to watching and thinking. And years later, Vincent wrote to his brother, we share a liking for peering behind the scenes. Perhaps we owe that to our boyhood in Brabant. And it says here, uh, his parents become worried because he's going out by himself. He's not doing this for a public show. And uh, they seem to see something morose in all of this. Uh, none of the things, none of the excuses they could come up with explained or justified Vincent's long, unaccompanied disappearances in all seasons and in all weathers. And to his parents' distress, he seemed especially to love walking in storms and at night. 
nor did he stick to the meadow trails or little garden byways in the village. Instead, he wandered far from the beaten path into untracked regions where no decent person would dare to venture, God-forsaken places where one would encounter only poor peasants cutting peat and gathering heather, or shepherds pasturing their flocks. Even the prospect of such contacts had to alarm Anna and Doris, and once he ended up near a town six miles away on the Belgian side of the border, a route that only smugglers took, returning home late at night with his clothes dirty, his shoes muddy and battered. And let's see. But most worrisome of all was, was that he went alone. His mother Anna, in particular, was deeply distrustful of solitude in all its forms. She seemed to think that the best way to deal with anxiety and worry was to surround yourself with people, in her case, with a large family. A popular parent's handbook of the time warned sternly that, quote, all country outings had to be closely supervised. Otherwise, the young man disappears into the woods and finds all that is capable of intoxicating his imagination. And, of course, you don't want a child discovering anything that might intoxicate his imagination. Uh, Vincent spent more and more of his time on these solitary cross-country treks, and less and less time, quote, visiting or playing with others. His schoolmates recalled him as aloof and withdrawn, a boy who had little to do with other children. Vincent went off on his own for most of the time, one of them said, and wandered for hours, quite a long way from town. And again, that is from an incredible book. I hope you can get a sense of how good it is, called Van Gogh, The Life by Stephen Nife and Gregory White Smith. Now what I'd like to do is uh, get you to, from his childhood to just when he begins drawing and uh, taking all of that seriously. But in order to get there, you need to hear this little timeline so that you know what is going on when I'm about uh, in the letters that I'm about to read from, and you know the context of his life. So just uh, let's take this quick trip through Van Gogh's early life. He's born on March 30th, 1853. When he's 11 years old, he's sent to a boarding school, and one of the most intense memories of his life is watching his parents uh, leaving the boarding school down the road and leaving him there. Two years later, in 1866, he is sent to another school, but in 1868, he leaves that school on his own and walks home. There's the walk again. Uh, Van Gogh's life is filled with enjoyable walks, uh, torturous walks where he seems to be, especially when he wants to be a preacher and he sees himself as an ascetic of some kind, punishing walks, where he ends up uh, with bloody feet and just... Uh, he actually says at one point, uh, that walk uh, nearly killed me. He has no food with him, no money. Um, so he leaves school on his own and he walks home. In uh, 1869, when he is 16 years old, he is sent to the uh, Goupil, uh, to work at Goupil, like an art supply store in The Hague. 
And uh, all of these early jobs come to him because someone in his family works at these places or they know someone who knows someone. So he's working there in The Hague at uh, basically an art supply store and also a place that sells prints and reproductions, which are new technology and all the rage at the time. Two years later, in February of 1871, his parents leave Zundert, which sort of caps his childhood as being a place that uh, not only uh, a place of memory for him, of intense memories, but also quite literally a place that he cannot return to to stay, although he does go back there now and again to visit. Uh, it is forever a place that he can't go back to live. Uh, in 1873, when he's 20 years old, he is transferred to the branch of Goupil in London. Although in the next year, in October, he is transferred to the Goupil in Paris temporarily because he's not getting well, he's not getting on well in London. He is beginning to show the pattern of his life where he ends up in a new place, uh, sort of is social at first. He's living in a boarding house, among other people. But slowly, 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 he retreats into himself, into whatever his pet obsessions are. And he doesn't like to see other people. And he goes for his walks. So he's. it's assumed that maybe, uh, maybe being in Paris will be better than London. In January of 1875, though, he is sent back to England, and by this time he is in the fervor that, uh, that he wants to be a preacher, he wants to be an evangelist, he wants to take up religious training. Uh, in May of 1875, only a few months later, he is sent back to Paris, and early the next year he is fired from his job at Goupil because he... <coughs> because he went home without permission over the holidays. In April of 1876, he goes back to England and begins working now at schools for children and also religious schools working with, um, working with ministers at the time. In January of 1877, after the holidays, he goes to work at a bookshop in Dordrecht, but that doesn't work out either. None of these things work. Uh, working at Goupil in London, working at Goupil in Paris, uh, his plans of becoming a minister and studying to do that does not work. Um, going back to England and working at schools and in religious schools does not work. January of 1877, working at a bookshop in Dordrecht does not work. There's the, there's the amazing story of him, of his bosses wondering, where is Vincent? Where is he? He's supposed to be working. And they find him in the back room with a huge ledger in front of him that he has separated into four, into quadrants, and he is translating the Bible, the New Testament, uh, into four languages. And the response to where is Vincent is he is translating the Bible again. He is not working. In 1877, his parents have given in to his wish that he should uh, study to enter the religious life, even though, uh, to be like his father, even though he never finished the equivalent of high school, and it will take an immense amount of uh, study and learning, uh, learning other languages, learning Latin and Greek, to get this done. So he goes to Amsterdam to study to be a preacher. That does not work. 
In July of 1878, he goes to Brussels after a spell at home, uh, not to become a preacher, but just to go to a sort of step down, an evangelical school. You don't need to know the languages, but you can go among the quote-unquote uh, everyday people just to preach. That uh, does not work. In late November of 1878, he leaves uh, for good uh, and goes to the Borinage region of Belgium, the mining region of Belgium, where it is said that he is given a six-month trial by the, uh, you, you would say, the evangelical authorities to see how well he does there. July of 1879, only uh, six months later, he fails that trial. He is too zealous a preacher. He walks to Brussels. Uh, in August of 1879, he takes a train home and returns quickly to the mining region. In 1880, just after uh, his first Christmas away from home, just after the new year, he goes through months and months of self-punishment. At one point, he walks nearly to Calais from where he is. In March of 1880, he returns to where his parents are in Etten. He is nearly committed uh, against his will, and the only reason he isn't committed is because uh, knowledge of that would, would get out in society and would bring shame onto the family. And he returns to the Borinage, the Borinage mining region where he goes at first to preach, and then he realizes uh, not only is he too zealous uh, about uh, telling everyone the gospel, but at some point he realizes he doesn't need, these people don't need uh, to hear the Bible. They need help. Um, in many of these places that he goes to, people think that he's a loafer, that he's useless, that he's lazy, that he's antisocial. But when tragedy strikes, at one point in Amsterdam, I believe it is, uh, there's a flood and everyone is amazed by how industrious and quickly Vincent gets up to help uh, everyone, people uh, helping people deal with the flood, moving stock in, in the stores, and all of these things. That must have been in Dordrecht at the bookshop. Um, and it's the same thing in this mining region where, where parts of the mine blow up or people just have so little clothes, so little food. These children have no food. They have no place to, uh, no place to go. And, uh, or they're just sick and dying people. I mean, these are husbands, wives, and their children working in mines all day. You can imagine the health effects. And he goes there, sort of like Walt Whitman during the Civil War, just to care for the people who no one else will care for, no outsider will care for. But even that, even then, he becomes overbearing. The people don't understand what he's doing there. Uh, they, know, they know they're poor. They know that, they're, uh, that they have no chance of getting anywhere in life. And they just have no idea what this guy is doing. Why is he hanging around them? Um, why is he giving them whatever money his parents or his brothers send to them? Why is he giving away his clothes? Why is he deciding to just go and live in a miner's hut that is no better than the houses they live in uh, when, the, when they know that he could very easily be doing something else? And this is the context in July of 1880 where he suddenly starts sketching. Uh, all throughout uh, his life, let's see, by this time he's 27 years old, 
Every now and then, he mentions to his brother, I'm sketching again. Um, here's a picture of London. Um, I would like to do a sketch of this or that. Or when he is going through his uh, sort of manic religious phase, he says things like, I'm sketching again, but I probably shouldn't be doing that. That's just a distraction. July of 1880, he suddenly realizes uh, he's reached his bottom. He's living in a miner's hut. Um, he has been a disappointment to his parents and his family in everything. And he suddenly realizes sketching, uh, making copies of the pictures that he loves the most. The one constant throughout his entire life up until this point. Even when he is going through his religious mania phase is to cover the walls wherever he's living with prints and reproductions of his favorite paintings. Of writing to his brother and saying, do you remember when we went to the Louvre or to the other museums and all the pictures there. And now he is starting to try to do that himself. So I want to spend the rest of the episode here reading from Van Gogh's letter from that time, or actually just before it, and uh, a little before that in October of 1879, and then moving into July of 1880, where he has this realization, where he talks about the shame of being a failure and so many things and the pain it's caused him and then the breakthrough of finding uh, just who he is. This comes from a letter from October 15th, 1879, writing to his brother. Dear Theo, I am writing especially to tell you how thankful I am for your visit. It was a long time since we had seen each other or written as we used to do. Still, it is better to be friends than to be dead to each other. The more so because, as long as one is not really dead, it seems a sham, or at least childish, to pretend to be so. Childish in the way of a young man of fourteen, who thinks that his dignity and his rank in society oblige him to wear a top hat. The hours that we spent together have at least given us the assurance that we are both still in the land of the living. When I saw you again, and walked with you, I had the same feeling which I used to have more than I do now, as if life were something good and precious and which one must value, and I felt more cheerful and alive than I have for a long time, because gradually life has become less precious, much more unimportant and indifferent to me, at least it seemed so. When one lives with others and is united by a feeling of affection, one is aware of a reason for living, and perceives that one is not worthless, not quite worthless and superfluous, but perhaps good for something. We need each other, and make the same journey as traveling companions. But the feeling of proper self-esteem also depends very much on our relations with others. And from now we, now we jump to July of 1880, there's a huge gap in their letters where Van Gogh goes through the deepest of his self, uh, of his self-punishment. The rest of these letters, I believe, come from July of 1880. And here we are. He says, uh, Perhaps you know I am back in the Borinage. Father would rather say, Father would rather stay in the neighborhood of Eton. I refused, and in this I think I acted for the best. Involuntarily, 
I have become more or less a kind of impossible and suspect personage in the family, at least somebody whom they do not trust. So how could I in any way be of use to anybody? Therefore, above all, I think the best and most reasonable thing for me to do is to go away and keep at a convenient distance so that I cease to exist for you all. And further down the page, now I must bore you with certain abstract things, but I hope you will listen to them patiently. I am a man of passions, capable of and subject to more or less foolish things, which I happen to repent more or less afterwards. Now and then I speak and act too hastily, when it would have been better to wait patiently. I think other people sometimes make the same mistakes. Well, this being the case, what is to be done? Must I consider myself a dangerous man, incapable of anything? I do not think so. But the problem is to try every means to put those self-same passions to good use. Isn't that the problem? The problem is to try every means to put those self-same passions to good use. For instance, to name one of the passions, I have a more or less irresistible passion for books, and I continually want to instruct myself, to study if you like, just as much as I want to eat my bread. You certainly will be able to understand this. They're always talking about books in their letters. And when I was in the other surroundings, in the surroundings of pictures and works of art, you know how I had a violent passion for them, reaching the highest pitch of enthusiasm. And I am not sorry about it, for even now, far from that land, I am often homesick for the land of pictures. And the next page. It is true that I occasionally have earned my crust of bread. Occasionally a friend has given it to me in charity. I have lived as I could, as luck would have it, haphazardly. It is true that I have lost the confidence of many. It is true that my financial affairs are in a sad state. It is true that the future is only too gloomy. It is true that I might have done better. It is true that I have lost time in terms of earning my bread. It is true that even my studies are in a rather sad and hopeless condition, and that my needs are greater, infinitely greater, than my possessions. But is this what you call, quote, going down? Is this what you call, quote, doing nothing? This is one of the few times that Theo accuses him of uh, doing nothing, essentially. You will perhaps say, but why didn't you continue as they wanted you to? They wanted you to go through to the university. My only answer is, the expenses were too heavy. And besides, that future was not much better than the one on the road now before me. But I must continue on the path I have taken now. If I don't do anything, if I don't study, if I don't go on seeking any longer, I am lost. Then woe is me. That is how I look at it. To continue, to continue. That is what is necessary. But you will ask, what is your definite aim? That aim becomes more definite, will stand out slowly and surely, as the rough draft becomes a sketch, and the sketch becomes a picture. Little by little, by working seriously on it, by pondering over the idea, vague at first, over the thought that it was fleeting and passing, till it gets fixed. I must tell you that with evangelists, it is the same as with artists. He realizes that immediately, that uh, 
his obsessions and his methods and the rest of it. Um, they weren't wrong when he was trying to be an evangelist or a preacher. They just had the wrong focus. They need, it needed to be on art. He says, So you must not think that I disavow things. I am rather faithful in my unfaithfulness, and though changed, I am the same. My only anxiety is, my only anxiety is, how can I be of use in this world? Can't I serve some purpose and be of any good? How can I learn more and study certain subjects profoundly? You see, that is what preoccupies me constantly. And then I feel imprisoned by poverty, excluded from participating in certain work, and certain necessities are beyond my reach. That is one reason for being somewhat melancholy. And then one feels an emptiness where there might be friendship and strong and serious affections. And one feels a terrible discouragement gnawing at one's very moral energy. And fate seems to put a barrier to the instincts of affection. And a choking flood of disgust envelops one, and one exclaims, How long, my God? How long, my God? Well, what shall I say? Do our inner thoughts ever show outwardly? There may be a great fire in our soul, yet no one ever comes to warm himself at it. And the passers-by see only a wisp of smoke, coming through the chimney, and go along their way. Look here, now, what must be done? Must one tend that inner fire, have salt in oneself? Wait patiently, yet with how much impatience, for the hour when somebody will come and sit down near it, maybe to stay? Let him who believes in God wait for the hour that will come sooner or later. For the moment, it seems that things are going very badly with me, and it has already been so for a considerable time, and may continue a while in the future. But after everything has seemed to go wrong, perhaps a time will come when things will go right. I don't count on it. Perhaps it will never happen. But if there is a change for the better, I should consider it so much gain. I should be contented, I should say, at last. You see, there was something after all. And he says, I write somewhat at random whatever comes to my pen. I should be very glad if you could see me in something, see in me something more than an idle fellow, because there are two kinds of idleness which are a great contrast to each other. There is the man who is idle from laziness and from lack of character, from the baseness of his nature. If you like, you may take me for such a one. But on the other hand, there is the idle man who is idle in spite of himself, who is inwardly consumed by a great longing for action, but does nothing, because it is impossible for him to do anything, because he seems to be imprisoned in some cage, because he does not possess what he needs to become productive, because circumstances bring him inevitably to that point. Such a man does not always know what he could do, but he instinctively feels, I am good for something. My life has a purpose after all. I know that I could be a quite different man. How can I be useful? Of what service can I be? There is something inside of me. What can it be? This is quite a different kind of idle man. If you like, you may take me for such a one as that. A caged bird in spring knows quite well that he might serve some end, 
He is well aware that there is something for him to do, but he cannot do it. What is it? He does not quite remember. Then some vague ideas occurred to him, and he says to himself, The others build their nests and lay their eggs and bring up their little ones. And he knocks his head against the bars of the cage. But the cage remains, and the bird is maddened by anguish. And the other birds say in passing, Look at that lazy animal. He seems to be living at ease. One cannot always tell what it is that keeps us shut in, confines us, seems to bury us. Nevertheless, one feels certain barriers, certain gates, certain walls. Is all this imagination, fantasy? I don't think so. And one asks, my God, is it for long? Is it forever? Is it for all eternity? Do you know what frees one from this captivity? It is every deep serious affection, being friends, being brothers, love, that is what opens the prison by some supreme power, by some magic force. Without this, one remains in prison, where sympathy is renewed, life is restored. And I will read that again. Do you know what frees one from this captivity? It is every deep, serious affection being friends, being brothers, love, that is what opens the prison by some supreme power, by some magic force. Without this, one remains in prison, where sympathy is renewed, life is restored. And of course, we remember <coughs> what happens with Van Gogh, even towards the end of his life. He never stops believing this. The great enthusiasm, the great happiness, the great frustration when it finally happens, and the great heartache when it ends, when he convinces Paul Gauguin to come and live with him in the Yellow House uh, in Arles in the south of France for only a few months as it was. Um, he never tired of believing that the, the best thing he could experience outside of his own art was the company, the friendship of sympathetic people and people who, people who could have patience with someone like him who had such a hard time dealing with other people. It's strange because you would think that what I've read so far, or what we might know uh, anecdotally of Van Gogh, that he is the tortured artist who just wants to be by himself, and that is just not true. He wants company desperately. He wants love and friendship desperately. <laughs> it just... It just doesn't work. But now we come to September of 1880 and listen to what Van Gogh is saying. I feel so happy to finally come to these pages instead. September of 1880, he writes to his brother, I have been making rough sketches of these drawings without advancing very much, but lately it seems to be improving. And I am hopeful that it will improve even more especially because Mr. Tiersty, that's a friend of theirs who worked at uh, the art supply place, especially because Mr. Tiersty and also you have come to my aid with good models, for at present I think it is much better to copy some good things than to work without this foundation. They've been sending him the best exercise books, you might say, the best how to learn how to draw books that they could find. Yet I could not keep from sketching in a rather large size, the drawings of the miners going to the shaft, which I sent you a hasty sketch of. 
though I changed the placement of the figures a little. I hope that after having copied the other two series by Barg, that's the, uh, the series of drawing books, I shall be able to draw minors, male and female, more or less well, if by chance I can have a model with some character. And as to that, there are plenty of them, plenty of locals with character. If you still have the book with the etchings after Michel, please lend me that sometime too, but there's no hurry. For the moment, I have enough to keep me busy, but I should like to see those landscapes again, for now I look at things with different eyes than I did before I began to draw. Once more my heartfelt thanks for having sent them. Everything you can find by that artist, uh, by Mie, uh, will be of the greatest use to me. I have already drawn his sower five times, twice in small size, three times in large, and I will take it up again. I am so entirely absorbed by that picture, and you're so happy to hear that he is absorbed in this thing. And uh, Francois Millet's picture, the sower, that uh, that figure ends up, uh, he only has 10 years in his life left to live, and he never forgets that figure, even when he goes to the south of France and discovers all the amazing colors that we think of Van Gogh with now. Um, he puts that sower in that color. On the next page, he simply says in one of his letters, so you see that I am in a rage of work. This is also September of 1880. And later on in that same letter, he says this, though every day difficulties crop up and new ones will present themselves, I cannot tell you how happy I am to have taken up drawing again. I had been thinking of it for a long time, but I always considered the thing impossible and beyond my reach. But now, though I feel my weakness and my painful dependence in many things, I have recovered my mental balance, and day by day my energy increases. Now I will tell you my opinion about coming to Paris. Theo invites him to go to Paris with him. If I had an opportunity to develop a friendship with some good and worthy artist, it would be of great advantage to me. But abruptly going there would only be a large-scale repetition of a trip he took that uh, nearly killed him, where I had hoped to meet some living specimen of an artist, but found none. The thing for me is to learn to draw well, to be the master of my pencil or crayon or my brush. This gained, I shall make good things anywhere, and the Borinage is just as picturesque as old Venice, as Arabia, as Brittany, Normandy, Picardy, or Brie. And it's a, he says, in the meantime, I will stay here quietly in some little miner's hut where I shall work as well as I can. And he says, wait, perhaps, someday, you will see that I, too, am an artist. I do not know what I can do, but I hope I shall be able to make some drawings with something human in them. But first I must draw the bargs, the practice drawings, and do other more or less difficult things. The path is narrow, the door is narrow, and there are few who find it. And I like that line, I do not know what I can do, but I hope I shall be able to make some drawings with something human in them. And w 
most of us, even if it is just by anecdote, we know what the rest of his life is, the last 10 years of his life. Goes back home, ends up then um, going to learn painting elsewhere in some of the bigger cities. He ends up in Paris with his brother and then ends up in the south of France. And by all accounts, even though there are some uh, conflicting theories, he kills himself. Uh, we know that he only sells one painting uh, during his entire life. We know that uh, uh, no matter what he did, he could never feel settled or at peace. We know that um, just as the people in the mining region were mocking him for being too zealous and uh, thought that he was mad, we know that when he went down to Arles and was doing his greatest paintings, the locals there and the children there and the parents there thought that he was mad mocked him and chased him and did every cruel thing. We know that he ended up in the in the asylum um, and all the rest of it. It's terribly sad and it breaks my heart every time just to think about it and just to talk about it. And that is one reason why I'm trying to write something about him uh, in poetry. But for right now, because we began with the idea of walks, I want to read one small thing. It's only half a page. Uh, when he was still in his religious fervor, um, let's see the date on this. When he was still in with his religious fervor and he was living in England and going to multiple church services a day, this would have been 1875, 1876 or so, um, and even though he had, a, he only had a, a halting grasp of the English language of being able to speak it out loud. He felt so happy and so enthused to be given the honor of speaking in front of uh, speaking in front of a church one day in front of uh, other worshipers, and in his letters there's preserved his uh, his sermon, which is way too long by far, probably uh, five pages long and four pages too long. Um, but he was so enthusiastic and so help so happy to be able to do it. And there's just one passage here, now that we have Vincent's walks in mind and everything else, that I wanted to close with, because it does seem to encapsulate uh, every image of his life, from the walks his parents took him on as a child, his walks across London and England, his walks throughout uh, the cities of Paris and Amsterdam and Dordrecht and Brussels, the walks he took at Eton when he would go back back home to his parents um, and everywhere else uh, down to the walks he took in the south of France and uh, with his uh, easel on his back just looking for landscape and looking for color trying to succeed trying to do something that was of some worth to someone other than him someone outside of his own mind trying and failing trying and failing and failing better um, and this seems to stand for everything. And this is what it says. He is quoting here, by the way, a poem from Christina Rossetti, uh, but it hardly matters what he is quoting because he makes it entirely his own. And this is what I will leave you with tonight. Thank you as always for listening. And this is a last word from Van Gogh's early years. Uh, our life, he says, our life is a pilgrim's progress 
I once saw a very beautiful picture. It was a landscape at evening. In the distance on the right-hand side, a row of hills appeared blue in the evening mist. Above those hills, the splendor of the sunset, the gray clouds with their linings of silver and gold and purple. The landscape is a plain or heath covered with grass and its yellow leaves, for it was autumn. Through the landscape, a road leads to a high mountain far, far away. On the top of that mountain is a city whereon the setting sun casts a glory. On the road walks a pilgrim, staff in hand. He has been walking for a good long while already, and he is very tired. And now he meets a woman, or a figure in black, that makes one think of St. Paul's word as being sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That angel of God has been placed there to encourage the pilgrim and to answer their questions, and this pilgrim asks her, does the road go uphill then all the way? And the answer is yes to the very end. And the pilgrim asks again, and will the journey take all day long? And the answer is, from morn till night, my friend. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to humanvoiceswakeus, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.